Hi, everyone. It's Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help your family members and friends. It is July 6th. Feels like it's impossible that we're already into July. And we're just at 10 a.m. Central Time, and we're live out of Chicago. Just want to mention that Your Caregiving Journey is part of our Caregiving Podcast Network. And our podcasters this month have been working on creating short escapes. So every day you can go to caregiving.com and listen to a short podcast that takes you away. Mm. So today we're going to talk about crucial caregiving conversations. And my guest has been joining us every month, and we've been focusing on a particular type of communication. And today we're going to talk about communicating with healthcare professionals. So joining me this, this morning is Warren Bear. He's an alumnus of the Robert Wood Johnson's Executive Nurse Fellows Program. He's also the Chief Innovation Officer for a home health analytics company. He's cared for his parents, and he currently cares for his daughter. So welcome, Warren. Thank you so much for being with us today. Denise, it is a joy to have these monthly conversations with you. Thanks so much for including me in the conversation. So I had suggested we talk about how to communicate with healthcare professionals because I think we do it all the time and we might not necessarily be as, I don't know, focused on the communication and where we're going with the communication. And I also think that we have really delicate conversations with healthcare professionals that can lead us feeling emotional, maybe disconnected and unsure of what's next, which leads us to feel tongue-tied. And I thought it would be helpful today to talk about what do we do when we have a conversation with a healthcare professional about a treatment recommendation for our caree or a change in prognosis or perhaps another diagnosis. I know that sounds big, and I think we're going to talk about this over more than just one podcast. I'm just curious, Warren, when you think about difficult and maybe delicate conversations that you've had with healthcare professionals, what comes to mind? When have you had a conversation that has felt, oh, wow, this is really bringing out a lot of emotions for me? I love your interview techniques. Uh, this, uh, it, it's amazing. And, and for those of you that are listening, we hadn't discussed this before. But, Denise, you have a gift in the way that you ask questions. Uh, this question takes me directly to my father. Uh, and mom are with me in his internist's office, a physician who's been a friend of my dad for decades, and dad was beginning to have some early signs of dementia, and it was time for us to take the car keys away. Uh, He had had three fender benders in a matter of a couple of weeks and had run out of gas in spite of the fact that he had a bell uh, and and a light on his truck. and, and yet still ran out of gas. So, so the, the critical conversation that we had visiting with dad's internist was one that really helped in that dad uh, knew the man well, we knew the man well, and the experience that we had that day was that even though it, was, it had the potential of being a very tense situation, and today most every healthcare engagement can be tense, in that place, it, it, it was a place that because we all knew one another, it was an easier situation that it needed to be. But I, 
try to treat dad with dignity and respect and allow him to share with his friend, the internist, about what had happened, but dad forgot that that was something he needed to talk about. So at the end of the the visit, I said, dad, you know, one other thing that we had agreed to talk uh, with Dr. Burt about was this situation with the fender benders and with your forgetting about running out of gas. So that was one situation that worked out well because we were with someone that we knew who cared about my dad and I would go so far as to say loved him and, and, but, but yet it was still a tense situation and still something that was difficult to do. So thanks for asking that question. I really think that it happens frequently in healthcare settings and, and today most situations don't work out as well as it did for that visit that we had. I think it's the emotions of it, right? We don't want to upset anyone. We don't want to upset our caree. We don't want to upset the healthcare professional either. I think in a caregiving situation, sometimes our people-pleasing tendencies just go haywire, and we want everything to be calm, except in those difficult conversations, it's so important for us to better understand what information is being delivered, if it's a new diagnosis, for instance, or if it's a change in prognosis. And it's so important for us to stay on task with what our caree wants. And then the challenge is that then we think, okay, but what do I want? How is this going to affect me? And how do I share about the impact on me when really it's right now about our caree? That can be a huge challenge. So one of the things that I think uh, our wonderful gift of technology has offered us lots of extraordinary benefits. Um, there are some studies that argue that we are not as good at communication and picking up on cues, et cetera, as we have been in the past because we oh. have so much, so much more of our communication is happening uh, via technology today. Uh, with text messages, even cell phones, um, et cetera, and a lot of the social media. So the things that we, for generations and generations, let's say millennia, have picked up on related to body language, related to facial expressions, related to the tone of voice, related to volume of voice, those are all really critical aspects of being able to communicate well. And for the most part, you know, we don't have to study those things because they happen as part of day-to-day life that you pick up on those things. But as we are communicating more with technology, if you're trying to communicate with a healthcare professional and, and you're not doing it in person, uh, we all know that some things can be lost in translation if you're just sending a text or an email because you're not seeing the body language or hearing the vocal tone or looking at facial expressions. So as as we as caregivers think about how we're going to communicate uh, with the healthcare professional, uh, we really need to be aware that an in-person visit certainly is optimal, but that's not always possible. So if you're going to communicate via uh, some electronic medium, it might be a good idea to have somebody else read it for you, somebody that you know and trust, before you send it out so that if there are uh, things that you use in a way that you present the words, uh, et cetera, it, it, it could make a difference with regards to how the message is received. 
And I think that that's another really important thing around communications. And that, that's not my background. It's not my area of expertise. But common sense tells us that you have the communication happening from the perspective of the person who is, is talking or, or writing or in some other way communicating. And then you ha- have the recipient. So essentially what comes out of my mouth or what comes off of my keypad may not be what is heard through that other person's ears are read because of the place that they happen to be because of their background, their personal experience, or, or whether they got up on the wrong side of the bed that day. So these are all really important things. And I appreciate you bringing this topic up around critical conversations because we've actually got to be much, much more careful in the way we communicate these days. Here is, I think, a challenge that happens during caregiving that's pretty unusual. We're going to the doctor with our caree. The doctor's appointment is about our caree. The doctor makes a recommendation for perhaps a new treatment or a new procedure. We listen to the recommendation. We think, okay, this is good for our caree, but this is going to make my life really difficult. And I'm wondering... How how do we insert ourselves into this conversation? Because I think what happens is we don't. We just say, okay, it's good for the carry. It's important. I'll just not sleep <laughs> so that I can make this happen. I think it puts us in this really complicated situation. First of all, we worry about talking honestly in front of our carry. And second of all, we think I cannot be the person that makes this an impossible opportunity. I can't think of myself if it's going to help our carry. Oh, my gosh. What do we do? And, and, yeah, and then you add to that the fact that we, uh, in our society at least, hold the medical profession uh, in, in high esteem. So uh, redirecting them or, or – or challenging them on something or saying, can we find a different way is something that we're hesitant to ask. Um, the other thing yes. that you and I talked about a lot, the other thing that we wow. talked about a lot is the fact that the family caregiver essentially has themselves at the end of the list most of the time with regards to, well, you know, as, as you just said, I've, I've got to find a way to make this work because it's my responsibility as the caregiver. But the reality is that if we are going to maintain a degree of resilience around our role as family caregiver, we've got to make sure that we're doing things in a way that helps us. Yeah. Um, I just saw, yeah. I just, saw um, just recently saw an article related to negotiating. And some of the things that um, it suggested was that you know, most of us are not real good at that because we want to make sure we're mm-hmm. keeping other people happy. But it suggested, you know, just some simple things to say would be, gee, can, can we go down 10% on that? Um, or saying, um, I'm not really sure where you're coming from with that. Would you expand on that a little bit more? Or just saying, you know, I, I, this is going to make things pretty difficult for me. Is, is there some other option that still accomplishes the same thing. So it's, it's, you know, as we're having the conversation, I'm thinking about the fact that 
you know, these these tools at negotiation for people met for business, really a similar tool could be put together for family caregivers so that they've got a script and they can follow something that seems to be a natural thing for them to say that they're comfortable with. Otherwise, what ends up happening most of the time is silence and the family caregiver has more stress, more difficulty, a, a, a more serious problem uh, than they had before when the health professional is trying to do something to alleviate uh, uh, an issue, it actually causes more harm than good. Yeah, I love that because it's not something that we consider as an option. How can I negotiate? We just completely eliminate that as an option. And I think it's so important when there's a recommendation that's given, we can be honest and yet we can be quite compassionate in our honesty. We can say, oh my gosh, this is so great that this important treatment is now available for my caree. We want to pursue this. However, there's a few logistics that I'd love to talk out with you. I work full time. I travel a lot. I've got six kids, whatever it might be. How can we work this around so that this happens and what I need to happen also happens? I love that, that it becomes this conversation. And, it's and not it, just it a is, directive. Yeah, and, and my suspicion, Denise, is that it, it is going to be happening more. And uh, as we move away from the old model of healthcare, which is fee-for-service, and the more stuff you did to patients, whether diagnostics or treatment or whatever, the more money you made, we're now moving toward value-based purchasing. Yeah. And what yeah. that means is that all of the stuff that used to be on the revenue side of the equation is now on the expense side of the equation. So guess who just got a whole heck of a lot more important than they've been for decades? The family caregiver. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we've got to figure a way to do is not only to essentially re-educate the professional, the healthcare professionals, about ways in which they can uh, enhance their communications with the family caregiver. But we also, on the other side of the conversation, need to be educating the family caregiver. That is going to be, I think, a bigger challenge because they're not within the classroom walls and they come from all different social strata, all different levels of education, all different uh, ethnicities and cultural groups. So the challenge that we've got yeah. for the family caregiver yeah. is that, is that and, and the other challenge, as you and I both know, is, is very seldom do they self-identify. So, you know, when I'm taking mom to the, the doctor, you know, because I, we did that with dad for such a long time, I recognize that I'm in the role of the family caregiver. On the other hand, the average person who's doing that for the first time, they're not thinking of themselves in that role yet. And very few people are going to be seeing themselves as advocate for yes. the caree. Yeah. So, so we've got we, we've got some work to do. The good news is there's lots of low hanging fruit. Um, you're probably seeing this. The managed care organizations, Medicare, Medicaid providers, um, to some extent, the 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 places that are educating social workers have always been good at this. Um, another place that folks are always good at working with family caregivers, uh, pediatrics and end-of-life care. Obviously, in peds, you've got to communicate well with the mom and dad. 
in end-of-life care as that person is nearing death, then, you know, the family is going to be the person that the healthcare people are communicating with. But in between, we haven't been real good at that. So yeah. that's another thing that we've really got to, got to get better at doing. So it's, um, it's fun having a conversation. The work that needs to be done is pretty significant, though. I just love this. It's this permission to insert ourselves into the conversation about what happens next in regards to our caries care. And it's not about taking away from what our carry needs. It's about ensuring our carry has needs met as well as we have our needs met as well. It's not an or, it's an and. And it's this idea of moving away from a directive that a healthcare professional might give us. For instance, we think of it as a prescription. We just do it. It's an idea of a conversation about what's a recommendation and how to make it a win-win. So thinking off of the cuff, which is, again, another thing I love about about these interviews with you, uh, essentially it, it takes us as a healthcare professional to really think very differently than we have in the past. Um, and, and perhaps, again, we, we borrow some things from uh, pediatrics and pediatricians and borrow some things from uh, the end-of-life care community because no longer are we caring for that person who's got, uh, you know, uh, heart disease or dementia or emphysema we're no longer, as healthcare professionals, caring for that person alone. We might have been when they were having these diseases in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. But now that they're having these diseases, but yet they're living, because healthcare has gotten better, they're living into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. We, we, as health professionals, need to see this no longer as caring for that patient alone, but just as in pediatrics and end-of-life care, there, there is a team. There, there are two folks that that are receiving care, and that, and that is not only the patient or caree, but also the caregiver. And yeah. and there are needs there are needs that both of them have that for decades we have been ignoring, uh, not only ignoring the caregiver's needs, but just ignoring them completely. So for us as health professionals. Uh, that that is gonna gonna take uh, you know one of my favorite uh, patterns of of knowing that I teach nursing students uh, and and I won't go into a long detail on that but one of the patterns of knowing is unknowing so there are situations where we need to forget and in some cases unlearn things that worked well in the past but they're not working today um, oh, there's there's wow. something new. Yeah. Yeah, but but, but the but the nature of human beings is is that we don't like change, and when it comes to change, it takes a lot of energy. We can be lazy, so to fall into the old patterns is so much easier. So this is, I think, a good conversation as we talk about healthcare professionals needing to unlearn the fact that in many cases we ignored the family caregiver for generations, and now we've got to find a way to engage that family caregiver in the conversation. I love this idea of unlearning. And I I think it's so helpful to think about it not only from the perspective of the healthcare professional, 
but from our perspective as well, because maybe for years we went into the doctor's office with our caree and just said, okay, we'll do it. And then left thinking, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this? Right. I, and, you know, the, uh, the other part of it, too, is I think it's important for us to talk about the logistics of a recommendation. And it could be sharing our concerns about the financial costs, the cost to our carry themselves in terms of what can they withstand and then the impact on us in terms of managing the day. And I don't remember if I shared this story last month when we talked, but I think about my mom who has been dizzy and very proactive about finding a solution for this. So she gets out her iPhone and she calls and she makes appointments. And so we go to the specialist with her, my dad and I. And at one point during a a visit to a specialist, it looked like on her MRI that she had a broken, like a crack on her vertebrae. So they automatically were like, oh, my gosh, you know, we've got to keep you stabilized. So they gave her a neck brace had a follow-up an appointment to make sure that it was or was not a little fracture. When she had her second MRI, she had it with contrast, and it almost killed her. And when we went to the follow-up appointment, when the doctor said, oh, there is no fracture, oh, my gosh, we were just like, what, are you kidding me? When he left the exam room for a few minutes, he, before he left, he said, well, I have to do an MRI in three months. I said to my mom after he left, we are not doing an MRI in three months. And she said, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness we're not doing that. We had not talked to the doctor about the impact of these MRIs on my mom because it just wasn't part of the equation. We just automatically dismissed what he recommended. If he had seen what my mom looked like on Thanksgiving, which was two days after the MRI with contrast, he would have never ordered another MRI for her. And I think it's important for us to think about what's appropriate for our carry, what can they withstand, and oftentimes the over-treatment is what makes it so much harder than it has to be. The term overtreatment is perfect here. And uh, again, I'm going to go back to the conversation around the fact that we're moving from an old fee-for-service model, gradually moving toward value-based purchasing. What that means is that the incentives are going to be better aligned for the right care rather than for the care that generates the most revenue. And I'll restate that because I think it it, it could be controversial. Yeah, it could be controversial. And if you got physicians or other healthcare people that listen to this, you know, they're going to say, did he just say that? As we move from fee-for-service, the old model, where everything that you do generates more revenue, to the new model, which is value-based purchasing, where all of that stuff that you're doing, MRIs, other diagnostics, surgical procedures, new innovative meds, days in ICU, all of that now is on the expense side of the equation more than on the revenue side of the equation. And, and what that means is that in the past, the incentives were aligned in a way that the healthcare systems wanted to generate as much revenue as they could. Now, 
because all of that stuff is on the expense side of the equation in managed care and value-based purchasing, it means that we're going to be more incentivized to be conservative in the treatment that a person's receiving. Now, we all know that, that you know, being ultra-conservative isn't always the best way to go. Being ultra-aggressive isn't always the best way to go. So the challenge that we've got is what is appropriate? You know, what is the right way to approach it? So from a caregiver's perspective, in your particular situation, you knew, you knew that another MRI was not going to make things better for your mom. In, a, in my dad's situation, when dad was dealing with dementia for seven years, he wasn't hospitalized one night over those seven years. Uh, his health had generally been relatively good other than the dementia. We knew that no hospitalization, for that matter, even frequent doctor visits didn't happen because we knew that they weren't going to heal the dementia. And so our decision as a family was that mom and dad's quality of life was going to be better if he wasn't doing all of the appointments all of the time because the doctor himself had mentioned that there wasn't really a lot they could do other than to monitor him. So the fact that, that we weren't doing frequent tests, having frequent visits, essentially meant that mom and dad's quality of life was so much better. Uh, now, again, folks who are listening to this, uh, Denise, are going to say, gee, as a guy saying that we shouldn't, shouldn't follow up with our doctor's visits. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, what I'm saying is that at some point, we in healthcare need to recognize that more conservative treatment is going to have a significantly positive impact, not only on that person's quality of life, but also the studies have shown, particularly in end-of-life care, that more conservative treatment actually increases one's longevity, whereas more aggressive treatment around chemotherapy, radiations, et cetera, um, can shorten somebody's life. So, uh, again, these conversations, they're a lot more complex um, so I don't mean to overly simplify some of these things, but when it comes to the role of the family caregiver, which is what you're asking about, it's not easy. There are going to be challenges, difficult, complex situations, and your role as a family caregiver is going to be to trust your gut instinct and say, yeah, we really think that, that, that this treatment probably is not necessary or this diagnostic test isn't necessary, and, and we're happy to deal with whatever the repercussions of that are. So interesting that we're finishing up with this because I think what we could do is continue next month with it. And, and that is this changing the habit around how aggressive we are about treatment for our carry. And it's a habit that forms over years. And we see that mm-hmm. when we're aggressive with treatment, at some point it helps. And it mm-hmm. can be hard for us to see when it doesn't help when it makes things worse. And I love this idea of unknowing. It's changing our habit about how we look at what the appropriate treatment is. And it's this shift from being very aggressive to maybe just saying, okay, I can see that the hospitalizations are making my carry worse, and I think it's okay that we look at alternatives. I'm still being responsible. I'm still taking good care, and I'm just sh- I'm just shifting into what that definition is. 
and I am still being okay as a family caregiver doing that because we feel like our responsibility is cure and getting better at all costs because that's the habit that we form. And it's a difficult shift. Yeah, you really said a mouthful there. The, the, the issue around the family caregiver's responsibility, what they feel mm-hmm. is the right thing to do. And, yeah. and, again, like as you said, this will be another series of programs. But essentially what we have done, and, and I will say that the, whether it was intentional or not, what we've done as professionals and as a healthcare uh, uh, industry, if you want to call it that, is, is to highlight those occasions when we have provided very aggressive treatment and the results have been good. We highlighted that because from a marketing perspective, it, it, it helped us with regards to showing people that, man, we could do good stuff for you. But, but what happened is I think that, and, and this is getting in a philosophical conversation, is that we managed to convince society in some way that doing everything for mom or dad or grandma or grandpa meant being as aggressive as possible. More chemo, more radiation, more days in ICU, more surgical procedures, more dialysis. But at some point when a person is nearing the end of life and none of those things are really going to make a difference, we, we now need to move to the other side of the conversation, and that's where the unknowing part comes in, is to move yeah. to the other side of the conversation, which allows us to recognize that in decades past, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa might have had their last few weeks or months on a bed in a corner window, looking out onto the yard, seeing their garden, flowers, grandkids, seeing a pasture, et cetera, and, and being with family and taking care of those things that are normally going to be happening in most cultures across the world in the last few weeks of life. However, today, our last, few weeks and days of life are often spent in a hospital setting, in an intensive care setting, in an emergency room getting your ribs cracked from CPR, when, when none of that is really going to make a difference in what the end result is. Again, I don't want to oversimplify the conversation, but the bottom line is that we need to unknow those routines that were more aggressive in treatment and begin to have more conversations around the fact that when it comes to treatment, oftentimes less is better. Yes. So, yeah, so uh, again, as you pointed out earlier, this is not a, a, a simple black and white conversation. There are a lot of aspects of gray here, and I think our opportunity to, to follow this conversation up uh, perhaps in a more focused way in future conversations will be a good thing. So here's what we'll do. Next month, we'll talk about when less is more. This was really great. Um, I just want to mention something, and that is a concept I developed 21 years ago, stages the caregiving experience. And I talk about this shift in stages four and five, and you can learn more about it on caregiving.com. And I've revised and tweaked this concept over the years, and the eighth edition of the handbook, which walks you through the caregiving years will be out within the next couple weeks. And it really talks about this shift, how hard it is and how important it is. And it's a shift that gives you peace of mind. 
which sounds so odd, but it does. Okay, this was great, Warren. For our listeners who'd like to be in touch with you and listen to your own radio show, how can they connect with you? How can they find your radio show? If they would do a web search for um, family caregiving, uh, Warren Hebert, even though my last name is pronounced Hebert here in French Louisiana, it's spelled Hebert. Uh, Warren Hebert Family Caregiving, uh, they could also put Radio Maria in there. Uh, that's where I've been doing a, a weekly radio program for 10 years, and there's lots of archives. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Warren. Have a great weekend. Thanks, and congratulations on your handbook coming out. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.